0: all right let's do it hi everybody i'm matt and i'm steve and this is marvel reread club hey it's not just the two of us here
1: we have a guest Riley Brown has joined us for this momentous episode where we get a lot deeper into the Galactus story here, and we felt that we shouldn't do this without sharing it with somebody. Riley stepped up. Riley, why don't you introduce yourself? Do not neglect your collaboration with your kid.
2: (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, guys. Thanks for being here. Uh, Yeah, I'm Riley Brown. I'm a comic book artist. I've done a lot of work for Marvel and DC, among Mm -hmm. other things i'm probably best known for my work on deadpool i've done a lot of various deadpool projects over the years you know through that my collaboration with fabian nicieza led to a creator-owned thing called outrage that we did for webtoon which is now in print and available through rocket ship entertainment um, which you can buy at comic book stores so look out for that at dc i did a batman vs. fortnite comic and yeah i mean i don't know i've done a ton of other things over the years But one of my projects I'm working on now that you alluded to is Thunder Guardian, which is a comic strip I do with my son who's in second grade. And so that's a lot of fun. You pretty much, he designs the characters and tells me the story. And then I, you know, sort of bring it to life. That's a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. That just sounds like a fantastic project for you to, for you to do with your
2: kid. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. I mean, there's nothing like just the crazy imagination of a seven year old, you know, there's a lot of boogers and variety of slimes and, monsters and all sorts of cool stuff so you know yeah. it's fun exploring how he sees the world
0: <laughs> well, that was sort of similar to the origin of axe cop right wasn't that also something where it was tapping into the imagination of one of the children of one of the creators i believe
2: yeah yeah pretty much and that was actually like a stepbrother or like a half brother type of thing that mm-hmm. a lot older but yeah totally the same idea like i loved axe cop and so when i had a kid that was the same age i was like oh yes finally i can do something like this <laughs>
1: It's fantastic and you've got your own podcast too
2: yes uh, i have a podcast called hypothetical island that i do with my co-host george o'connor who's um another comic book creator we used to have an art studio in brooklyn for years and you know eventually disbanded and we were like man we miss sitting around the studio and just talking about the geeky that we'd always talk about yeah, we started to uh, start up the podcast, and we have a lot of cool guests on, and other comics creators, and animators, toy designers, and just cool people. So Cool.
0: Does George O'Connor, does he do the Olympians books?
2: Yes. Oh, yes, I exactly. love those books. Yeah, my son
0: stays up at night reading those books to himself. He loves those books. That's great. Well, uh, tell him, uh, tell
2: him yeah, I'm a fan. it's fantastic. Now he's doing, a, he's doing a series on the Norse gods next. Oh, fun. So,
1: yeah. Awesome. Nice. Um, oh, and just as an aside here, we do try to keep this podcast PG. So we we often have to censor ourselves. Both of us tend to have rather filthy mouths when we don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we figure, you know, this is comics. We want this to uh, to be a little bit more kid friendly. But we can bleep things. And we have done that for ourselves oh, yeah. and others in the past. But I just wanted to throw yeah, that out know. there.
2: Sorry. Yeah. When I said that, I was just like, wait, is that OK? But I think you should be able to cut it. And Oh, yeah.
1: Or or we'll just bleep it and it'll sound like you're our filthy guest that we had on.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But whatever whatever sounds better.
0: (laughs) All right. I've never seen the YouTube video of the count on Sesame Street, except for it's been bleeped in a way that makes it sound like he's being very obscene. (laughs)
2: That that, that (laughs) sounds
0: awesome. (laughs) Censored count on YouTube. and uh, (laughs) its I'm going
2: to look that up. That's great.
0: Great. One of the dirtiest things you'll ever hear.
2: (laughs) Okay, so
1: let's go ahead and get on in here. And, Riley, as you have any comments from the Peanut Gallery, (laughs) let it be known. That's why you're here to be the Statler and Waldorf to our Muppets. (laughs) Okay, we've got The Molten Man Regrets, which is an odd title. It seems to be referencing the Cole Porter song, Miss Otis Regrets She's Unable to Lunch Today. (laughs) Why? But yeah. why? What is does this that, issue that, have to do with that song?
2: Okay, yeah, I did not get the title <laughs> at all. I figured it, it must have been some pop culture reference of the time, but I... It is. It yeah. is it doesn't seem that regretful. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, but I mean, that's a song basically about this rich woman's servant answering the door and saying, I regret she can't lunch today. And through the course of the song, it turns out I think she's killed herself. Um, oh. you know? <laughs> so. wow. She is, she is
0: sorry to be delayed. But this evening down on Lover's Lane, she strayed. That's one of the only uh, lines I remember from the song. But yes, uh, yes this is truly bizarre. <laughs> You know, I've noticed this with Mad Magazine. I've thought about if this podcast ever comes to its natural or unnatural end, and we wanted to keep going, then I would love to go ahead and do a complete Mad Magazine reread because there is (laughs) so much going on politically in those comics, especially in the 70s and 80s. Oh, good God, yes. But one of the things – I was going through and I was doing a complete reread just on my own, which is what makes me want to go back and do it on uh, on a podcast. But one of the craziest things about that magazine is it always presents itself as this countercultural magazine, like, oh, we're the hip young countercultural magazine. But every time they ever do song parodies, like, oh, you know, we're talking about the population explosion. But in the style of the song, it's always Broadway. It's always Miss Otis Regrets. It's never like in the style (laughs) of Purple Haze or anything like that. It's in some ways, it's just such a fundamentally old, out of touch conservative magazine that they don't realize they're not as hip and countercultural as they think. So I think this is another example of this from Stanley. How Stanley is uh, uh, is not as hip as he thinks he is. If he is referencing episode regrets. regrets Who knows
2: his whole in His whole shtick is kind of not being as hip as he thinks. Yes, he, I mean, that's, that's like, part of the joke of like the whole carnival Barker attitude. That's you know so. I think it fits. It's, just, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's almost like to his, to his whole attitude is, hello, <laughs> <Yeah>. fellow kids. part <laughs> <laughs>
2: <It's a little laughs> of the joke. It is it. Yeah, exactly. But also, <laughs> he's doing like, you know, 10 comics a month. Half of them have two stories in them. And he's just like, whatever, man. Whatever gets it finished. Like, uh, yeah, he uh, regrets something. Who knows? <laughs>
0: yeah. Next page. Are you guys familiar with the, the story behind this cover?
1: No. he had completely you, forgotten about it until you just asked me that question, and now I am remembering something about it. Yes. yes.
0: You can Google yeah. Amazing Spider-Man number 35 original cover and okay. see that the problem is it was a whole lot of butt. <laughs> Dicko turned in this cover, and Spider-Man's foot was not mocking his butt on the original cover. Stan Lee was like, yep, too much butt. This is just uh, a little butt
2: cover. And well, that, and it's, that's a badonkadonk. That is- <laughs> <laughs> that is a big butt. He's <laughs> been working with glutes. Oh, my gosh.
1: I'm, I'm looking for it here. I'm not coming up with it. I don't think that this is uh, Ditko who redrew him here, is he? I don't know. Hmm. Doesn't but, look uh, like it. Yeah, that could not be Ditko. I think it might be Ditko. I think it might be. I'm not sure. Okay. I, I found it in the uh, Mexican edition uh, that I yes. have here. Of course, Mexican Spider Man is known for having a lot of badonkadonk in it.
2: <laughs> Did they add more badonkadonk than usual?
1: <laughs> uh, yes. Oh, really? yes. No, 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 I, dude. You need. You need to. You need to Google what Mexican Spider Man Gwen Stacy. All
2: right. Uh, right, right now, okay.
0: Mexican this is, is some of the greatest radio we've ever produced. It's Just telling people <laughs> at home to go Google things. <laughs>
1: Like after Gwen Stacy was killed in the American comics, the Mexican comics didn't want to do that. so They started doing their own kind of renegade Spider-Man timeline, where uh, oh, wow. <laughs> where Gwen stayed alive, and they gave it to this Mexican artist who just really had a thing for Gwen's butt. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've never seen that on some of these covers. Like ooh. That, was, that was he redrawing. A lot like a significant amount of the comic were they new stories or oh, yeah
0: there was i mean you can see there's a picture here of peter and gwen getting married i think you know i think this has been overstated the Trish marriage i think it might have been an imaginary story or something they they were doing completely new comics in mexico with uh, oh wow the continuing adventures of peter wow. and gwen because they liked gwen too much to kill her off yeah that's weird
2: that's I, all right now i kind of want to see I, I want a translation of these <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Alternate reality and a little, extra, a little extra booty in there. That's yeah. right. That's right. Cool. Okay, so
1: we are probably already into most of my 15 minutes here, and we haven't gotten past okay, page right. one. So, right. <laughs> um, We're so, We're good. so <laughs> Molten Man Regrets. Credits are script and editing Stan Lee, plot and artwork Steve Ditko, lettering and loitering Art Simac. And I have noted that it seems like Stan is restraining himself a little bit from the silly credits on the Steve Ditko collaborations that he's doing lately, probably to try to appease steve ditko in a way that does not end up working so uh the molten man ends up getting out of jail he gets out of jail largely because he gets a soft on crime judge who says oh well you know i'm sure that you can make better choices in the future here have your freedom which seems like a very (laughs) steve ditko at this point in his philosophical development kind of thing to happen (laughs) yeah yeah so uh so apparently the molten man's apartment has uh just stayed available for him while he was uh going through the legal system he comes back and he's uh practicing bending up all sorts of big iron bars that happen to be in his apartment i'm not quite sure how that's going on then he goes on to more crime
2: and theft he doesn't just go into crime and theft he has a mask that he's wearing a total disguise so people don't know he's the molten man right um because later we do see, apparently, he just spends most of his days walking around, just totally in his metal form, and nobody seems to notice. Like, right. or At least they don't mention it in here. So <laughs> I just found that, you know, it's one of these these great '60s rubber mask stories where oh yeah, are wearing a mask and no, and it, and it totally fools everyone. Which I've never seen a mask quite that good, but. Yeah no, no
1: Matt and I are often discussing about how mask technology in the Marvel universe is far beyond our understanding. Right. <laughs> you can have masks on top of masks on top of masks and no one will ever figure it out. It's really astounding. Yeah. Anyway, Spider-Man figures out this guy he was fighting at this jewelry thing might actually be the Molten Man in disguise. So he goes and tracks him down and figures out that it seems like he's probably right.
2: I mean, it's mostly a wild guess on Peter Parker's part.
1: Yes, but he was like, oh, when I punched that guy, it felt like iron. Iron? <laughs> well, the Molten Man is kind of metal-like. Maybe oh, right, it's right, right.
2: No, that's it. Here's the line. He says, boy, he sure packed a punch like iron. Iron? iron. Iron's a metal. And his punch felt just like metal. Molten man's made of metal. And then- <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, it's uh, one of those things like twelve inches in a ruler. Queen Mary was a famous ruler. Therefore, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I forget what that whole joke was. But yeah. Queen
0: Mary was also the name of a ship. Ships have in the oceans. Oceans have fish. Fish have water. Therefore.
1: Uh, Spider-Man follows Molten Man in his new disguise to another job that he's doing and is able to track him down and attack him before the Molten Man is able to get into this big bank vault or some sort of vault. So they have a big fight scene and this is interesting. Um, Stan Lee on the top of page 11 says, and now we promised Artie Simak we'd let him go wild with sound effects for a page or two. So here goes, and then there's just a big fisticuffs battle going back and forth with sound effects. Thwop, patwee, brack, kapow, walk. And it's <laughs> it's like the, Spider-Man's known for his quips, all the smart ass things he's going to be saying during yeah. this fight. And it is a little bit odd to have this. I've heard some people speculate this might have something to do with steve ditko getting tired of all of the uh dialogue that lee would put over spider-man and stuff like this and oh. that he somehow pulled something to make it to where stanley couldn't do that like i don't know talk to Artie Simack first for him to be able to say hey can i
2: do this I oh that's know. funny i
1: mean uh,
2: i when i read this you know years ago you know when i was a kid i really thought that was a funny gag like oh now it's gonna be the sound effect section yeah um Stanley did in several comics uh, yeah. but this one, he preludes that on the first page with a little caption that says, this is an old fashioned faction packed episode or something like that. And throughout the issue, I totally get the feeling that Stan does not like this issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, he, there's, a, there's several points where he's just like, he seems to be saying, I don't know what's happening in this picture. Like I, uh, the window broke for some reason. We'll never know why. <laughs> like that.
0: Yeah. I, oh, he certainly didn't like the cover. Yeah. It's interesting. It says on the first page, this one is for the real old-fashioned, dyed-in-the-wool Spidey fanatics who like to see old Webheb fighting as only he can. We envy you. We're going to have yourself a ball. And it's really interesting because usually you know, this book has had – it's just introduced a whole new supporting cast with Harry Osborne and Gwen Stacy, and it's got a lot of stuff going on, a lot of soap opera stuff. I find it really refreshing that on one hand, it's like, well, this is Dicko being less ambitious in his final issues, but it just begins with Spider-Man is swinging over the city and hears a gunshot and investigates. And part of me is like, oh, well, that's lame. He just coincidentally runs into the bad guy. But part of me is like, well, we know he patrols the city and – it's not that much of a coincidence that just once he happens to be swinging over, listening for gunshots, gunshots are loud, and he was swinging over the city and heard a gunshot and it happened to be one of his villains. I'm I'm there for that. I buy that. And I think it's nice to just have a mostly action issue with less soap opera stuff.
2: Yeah, I agree. Uh, in theory, I think at this point, Stan Lee and Steve Dickel weren't really talking to each other no. much. Oh, no. Like, you can tell, just, there's so many things where the captions or the dialogue is kind of like, I don't know what's happening here. Or he's like, uh, I guess the webs don't stick to him because he's slippery. <laughs> that doesn't make sense, but okay. Yeah.
1: Well, in, in the previous issue, there was something where Betty Brant had just quit her job at the Daily Bugle. One of the characters is thinking, gee, I wonder what happened. I wonder when you know if we're ever going to see her again. And Stan just piped up with, so do we, lady, yeah.
2: so do we. <laughs> And the very last panel of this issue is a similar thing where it's like, next issue, who's this guy? And he's like, I don't know. We'll find out. (laughs) Yes. Well, um, We
1: we have some great fight scene stuff in here. Uh, Again, as I've talked about a lot, I really – one of the things that makes Ditko's fight scenes unique is how much he has the characters interacting with the actual set piece that they're on, you know, and the rooms and how they're moving from room to room and what's in the room and does a lot of really cool stuff. There's a great shot of Spider-Man freeing himself from a bear hug with a big – a uh, flip that he pulls uh with his webs from the ceiling that's uh, that's really quite nice So Spider-Man remembers, apparently, where the Molten Man's hideout is and just goes there and waits for him after the uh, fight (laughs) breaks up here. So Molten Man thinks he's gotten away and then gets back to his apartment. And, you know, Spider-Man's like, oh, yeah, you know, I I just assumed that your uh, apartment would still be waiting here for you. So (laughs) here we are. Uh, And he's able to finally tie up Molten Man, even though he's got his uh, molten slipperiness, but he's able to work his webs in such a way that he's able to
2: do it. Wait, what, what is Molten Man's deal? Is his skin supposed to be slippery or any, or is he just made of metal? Like, I I can't remember. They're
0: going to change it. Eventually, he's going to be on fire. Eventually, the Molten Man is going to be like molten. He's going to be hot right. to the touch. But now he's
1: not at all. Now he is just very metally and slippery and tough. Okay. Basically, there was some kind of experimental liquid metal, you know, think mercury, but something gold colored. Oh, okay. He was the assistant to the scientist who was working with that stuff. He then, in once again, a very randy Randian objectivist kind of thing is like, <laughs> well, hey, I've been working on this stuff too. That means it belongs half to me. So I'm going to take it away <laughs> from the inventor who you know came up with this stuff out of his own inventiveness and i'm just gonna loot the whole thing and head off with this and he ends up turning himself into the molten man
2: okay uh, <laughs> okay so he's supposed to have like a like an intrinsic slipperiness to him i wasn't sure about that okay yes that makes
1: sense. he slippery you know so after okay. wrapping up the molten man and giving him to the cops peter goes to the daily bugle and uh, is asking out betty and this is where he finds out that she is gone and he is really sort of taken aback by this, kind of distraught, and just kind of walks out and says, eh, "You can mail me my money. I don't really care at this point." And um, he then throws the picture of him that the Betty thing, had on her desk in the, the trash. The only thing
0: that she left behind when she moved out was his framed photo where he had written to Betty forever, Peter, and then she just left it behind when she left.
1: so so then there's that last panel that you were talking about it says next ish a swinging supervillain so different so new we can't even tell you his name yet so i figure one of two things was happening here one steve ditko hadn't said anything about what his name is and so stanley was just as much in the dark as all of us or he knew that something about the next issue, and knew that he was really, really should be named Meteor Man, because of how he got his powers, (laughs) but that Steve Ditko was insisting he be called the looter, because he's been getting deeper and deeper into Anne Rand's Atlas Shrugged stuff at this point, and that's one of her favorite terms to use for, like, basically government bureaucrats, so um, I don't, it was one of those things.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, it's not, it fits into other 60s Marvel stuff, so it's not that Weird or stands out that much, unless you know, you know about the, right. the backstory and the strife between them. that's like, oh, there's something going on here. Yeah. As a comics creator, it's not out of the ordinary to uh, something's happening next issue. We haven't figured out the details yet, but uh, it looks <laughs> something like this, like that. You know, yeah. part of the fun. <laughs> Absolutely, this one just seems
1: particularly. Uh, the whole bottom third of the page is showcasing yeah. this guy, and they're like, yeah. "Yeah, I got no, I got nothing." Here he
0: is.
1: (laughs) So, Matt, do you have any thoughts about this? I think I like this issue a lot. The
0: post-Master Planner... Dicko Spider-Man issues are sort of not very well remembered, but this is sort of a low energy issue. It's leaving most of the soap opera stuff on the back burner and just having Spider-Man randomly hear a gunshot and then get in on the action and then having a big fight. Of course, we did not mention all of the Venetian blinds in the background, but there are lots of Venetian blinds in the courtroom, in molten man's lair, everywhere. This is a nice change of pace issue, as it says at the beginning, that this is just Spider-Man hears a gunshot, he investigates, he gets in a big fight, and we have an interesting issue. And then just when you think there's not gonna be any soap opera stuff, then you get this heartbreaker of an ending where he finds that Betty has left him and left his picture behind. He's destroyed. It's heartbroken. I think it's an excellent issue. So let's do Daredevil next. Okay. Here comes Daredevil, the man without fear, number 15, and men shall call him Ox. So Daredevil has been swinging all around the world and fighting Kesar and the Ponderer, and it's very nice to have him back in the city here, fighting a street-level villain who he's fought before, unsurpassed story by Stan Lee, unexcelled penciling by John Romita, unparalleled inking by Frankie Ray, who is Frank Giacoya, unabashed lettering by Artie Simak, Again, I prefer Romina inking himself. I think Ray is an excellent inker and does an excellent job inking this issue, but not as good as Ramita does himself. Where Ramita, I think, is just fantastic inker with a lot of personality. I think one of the reasons why we didn't think of John Romita as being particularly great when we were growing up reading the very occasional work he would do in the nineteen eighties is that you rarely got to see him ink his own stuff in the nineteen eighties.
2: Yeah, come on, give the guy a, give the guy a weekend, man. That's a lot of work you're asking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, he was at that point, he was the artistic director of Roll of Marvel, so he For was sure. a busy man. But we will see him in other stuff this month, so we will see. call Ox, so we have Tara will finally back in New York, swing around. He sees that Falky is still feeling bad about having gotten beaten up at this point nine issues ago uh, by the Ox. But uh, <laughs> this just gives us a chance to check back in with the Ox. The Ox is in prison with a guy named Strang. I like this story. This is an old-fashioned parable story of the kind that we used to get more early on in the early days of Marvel Comics, where the plotting is insane. It's a very poorly plotted book, but it's a nice story. The story itself that is being failed to be properly conveyed by this plotting is kind of nice. So then Strag is the scientist who is cellies with Ox and says, hey, you break us out of here and I can make you smart. And Ox says, okay, I'd love to be made smart go ahead and break me out of here. They do. And they steal a motorcycle, uh, trying to cram ox onto a motorcycle. It makes for sort of a funny looking image on page six. But then you have plotting mistake number one, and it's a doozy. They go ahead and show Daredevil, who, as you have find out, exercises in his home gym with his sunglasses on. I'm not sure he would <laughs> necessarily have his sunglasses on. He hears the APB on the radio saying that, The Ox and Strag have escaped, and they're somewhere in the city. And he says, okay, I'll swing around the city until I find them. And we cut away from him swinging around the city to find them. We then cut back to them and what they're doing while he's swinging around the city. And they are doing a lot. Strag does not have his own lab. Ox says, well, I'll take you to Mr. Fear's old lab and see what you can do there. And Strag says, okay, here I am in a lab I've never set foot before and it says, a short time later, he has invented this huge machine for brain switching. He has invented supposedly a machine just to make the ox smarter, but it's actually a brain switching machine where he and ox are going to switch brains. Now, this is desperately calling out for a caption that does not say a short time later, a caption that says, two months later. (laughs) And if that caption had said two months later, this whole book would have made so much more sense. But the problem is they've already shown that Daredevil is already swinging around looking for them. So they have to imply this whole thing happens during I,
2: one. I have to of say, Daredevil. upon entering the lab, his first word is, it's perfect. It's even better equipped than you told me it was. So I think we can imply from that the brain switching mechanism was already largely assembled already. <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't Mr. Fear's thing at all. Well, I mean, he was dabbling. I don't know.
0: Yes, he says the process is ridiculously simple. time
2: to complete it. It wasn't, like, finished, you know?
0: <laughs> yes, they, they tried to address this. They have, I'm all ready for you now, Ox. He says, how could you prepare it so fast? Question mark, question mark. He says the process is ridiculously simple. Unfortunately, however, it can be dangerous. That's why I was jailed for endangering lives. It's Absolutely crazy. So then they do the brain switching. Romina does a good job with brain switching. Uh, then Strag now has Ox's body. Ox realizes he's in Strag's body, which he didn't realize was going to happen. Uh, Strag in Ox's body whaps him down and says, you've served your purpose to me. I need you no longer. And then Strag in Ox's body goes out on a rampage around the city. Now, this is huge plot contrivance number two. It just so <laughs> happens that Karen is walking by when this is happening. And... It could have been anybody. I think it would have been better to just have this be a random woman. It's asking too much of a ridiculously coincidental plot to have Karen walk by at this point. But then Daredevil attacks Stragonox's body. Stragonox's body knocks him out, kidnaps Karen, and then it turns out that Ox – was presumably carrying around a whole second set of his own clothes within his vest, just in case he needed them, I guess in case he spilled some soup on himself and uh, wanted to have another outfit. And so he's like, oh, I'll go ahead and put this second copy of my identical clothes on Daredevil. And that way people will think, oh, all we know is that somebody didn't describe Ox wrecking the city. They just described someone wearing green pants, a yellow shirt, and a green vest wrecking the city. And they (laughs) failed to mention he was also wearing a Daredevil costume. And so then the cops (laughs) will come and find Daredevil in this outfit and put him in jail, which they do
2: now, of course. This is another fantastic line in there. I had a feeling I might find use for this extra set of ox garments. <laughs> you know,
1: that's just common sense. Do, yeah. you, do you not walk around with an extra set of ox garments with you at all times? <laughs> it might come in handy. <laughs> it, it, it might.
0: Of course, they. the police are convinced Daredevil studies all things. Daredevil says, did anyone remove my mask while I was unconscious? And the cop says, no, nah, a whole team of DAs are still arguing about whether they got the right to do it or not. And if Darewell thinks that's a relief,
2: I hate that. That's one of my least favorite superhero contrivances. The whole, like, (laughs) do we have the legal authority to take his mouth? It's like, yes, you do. Everybody, You book someone, you, like, take all their stuff. You can take off their dang mask.
0: They don't even take away the vulture's wings when he's in prison. And uh, they don't take off
2: just... his ox garments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's still
0: so even wearing the ox garments.
1: And he doesn't even take them off. That's the thing. He's sitting there alone in this cell. Why hasn't he just taken these extra bulky clothes off so he's just in his Daredevil outfit? So then Ox
0: and Karen go back to where – Oxes and Stragg's body. Ox and Stragg's body is actually not as dumb as he looks, and he figures out a way to knock down Ox with some big equipment. But Ox manages to get away, run out in the street, overturn a cop car, daredevil. Finally, Franklin Nelson, his lawyer, gets him rid of habeas corpus, gets him released. Franklin uh, franklin with a Y, oddly enough. Yes. That's true. Huh. Is it always spelled that way? No, I don't think I don't so. think so. It's
2: interesting.
0: So Daredevil ends up fighting Ox. Ox goes, takes a header off a building and presumably turns into street pizza here. And uh, <laughs> then Ox and Strag's body then – at first he says, I'm going to go off and make a better life for myself. So I like this general story. I like brain-switching stories. Yeah. They're always fun. Yeah, and there's too. no idea of poor Ox, the dumb criminal who probably wouldn't be a criminal if he weren't so dumb and then he finds redemption by having his body stolen and realize he could be a better person. I would love it if he just goes off and uses this as a way to restart his life and said, because it's a comics code book, he has to think at the end, I'll go back to prison now. It's like being given a second chance at life and this time I'll make a second thing of myself. I'll try to be worthy of this miracle. You know, of course he's gotta go back to prison. This is yeah. A very poorly potted issue. It's nicely drawn by Romita. It's nicely inked by Ray, although I think Romita Inks would have been even better. And I like the general story, but the plotting is atrocious.
2: I find the plotting fun. I mean, I don't know. I'm not as critical about some of those. Like, it's like, oh, what? Karen just happens to be walking by. To me, that's part of the fun of the genre and especially how it was done in that time period. So I don't, I don't mind that.
1: Yeah. Uh, so a couple of my thoughts. I do find that uh, Stan Lee's portrayal of Matt's performance of his blindness can be a little bit weird when Foggy is apparently, you know, having his you know traumatic brain injury or whatever, you know, come back from last time he got beat up by Ox. Matt is like, oh, well, they're coming in. This isn't good. I can hear, or hear his heartbeat or pulse beat, as they call it. But then he's like, oh, but I can't let them know that I know of it. And he's like, I, I heard something. Is someone there? Who is it? As they're like walking into his legal office, you know. It's like, yeah. <laughs> come on, he, he would be able to, to to figure at least that much out. When Daredevil is swing is going along on the, on the rooftops, at one point, there is a cable or a wire that is just suspended up. In space, seemingly above any of the buildings. And it's like, is this a power cable? Is this some kind of anchoring wire? Is this, you know, what is it? And is Daredevil balancing on it or is he sliding down it there? I, I don't, you know, it's like, it, it looks cool, but, you know.
2: Oh, he's right. surfing on it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it's the surfing thing that I was getting at.
0: (laughs) The Disney Tarzan movie, which I was not a fan of, they had this idea of like, oh, he doesn't swing on vines. He rides them like a skateboarder. And I'm like, what? Huh? Okay.
2: I was always worried he's going to get splinters that way.
1: The last panel on page 13 where Ox clearly has just shattered Daredevil's pelvis. Um, (laughs) That's (laughs) uh, tons of fun. You just look at that. You're like, oh oh my, <laughs> that, that caused him internal damage. That's not going to be good. As you said, Matt, it's good to have him back in New York City, no longer gallivanting around the Savage Land and all sorts of other nonsense. So which one are you wanting to move on to next year, Matt? Why don't you do Thor? The Mighty Thor, number 127. Now, this is the second issue that's actually been called Thor rather than Journey into Mystery with Thor, Yes. Yes. On the cover, Odin is still wearing that same weird helmet that he was in the previous issue with the huge horns that have that weird little link thing between the bases of them. And we see the cover Odin is uh, hanging his head in seeming mourning as he is holding the seemingly lifeless body of Thor in his arms. And at the bottom in flames, says the hammer and the Holocaust.
0: You can tell so, that Kirby is very disappointed. Kirby, it's very important to Kirby not never have Odin wear the same helmet twice then top himself <laughs> every issue with a crazier helmet. But this has all been one storyline and it's all been happening continuously. And so Kirby is like, all right, fine, I'll draw Odin with the same helmet, given that he's <laughs> still in the middle of the same action he was in in the previous issue. But you
1: can tell it chaps his hide.
2: Yes. Remember which direction the horns bend.
1: (laughs) Yes. And Vince Coletta here is not doing the cover any favors in this case, either a cover that could have been really awesome, but just doesn't seem to have come together in a way that I would have liked.
0: Well, Riley, we always like to give visiting artists a chance to give their opinion on Coletta. So, where do you fall in the great Coletta debate?
2: I kind of dig Coletta, honestly. I mean, I can imagine, you know, he's famous for erasing details and stuff that Kirby put in, which as the artist, that would infuriate me. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to spend time drawing all those people in the background and belt buckles or whatever it was that Coletta hated to ink. Um, it's like, man, I put time into that. You got to put time into that too. But like as a reader, uh, I think it's kind of cool. And I dig how it has a di- just a different feel from like like the Fantastic Four stuff that you know Kirby for. So You know, I don't mind it. How about you guys? Are you you guys are Coletta fans or no? Matt
1: is generally a very much team anti-Coletta. I am usually, I will give credit where credit is due and I will call him out when he needs calling out. Uh, so but growing up reading comics in the 80s when coletta was still working on stuff i remember kind of liking his work then yeah and you know i uh, there was one point when i was getting serious about trying to break in as a comics anchor and people were like oh yeah who are some of your favorite anchors growing up and i mentioned coletta at one point and people were like Dude, <laughs> <laughs> <Last minute. laughs> like, wait, I thought that you were, I wanted to be a good inker. Like, what the heck are you talking about? There's some distinctive things about his style that I do like, but sometimes, especially this stuff in the 60s, he could just be way too brutal with what he does with some of these
2: it's, things. It's a weird match for Kirby. Like, I, I really like Coletta's hatching and stuff, which you don't mm-hmm. see on Kirby very often. So that's part of what I think is cool about it. Cause it's like, oh, you mm-hmm. don't usually see, Kirby's work treated this way but there's also a reason it's not usually treated that way and it's totally (laughs) weird sometimes like the cover actually looks cool but that first page what's going on with Thor's arm and hand and stuff like those muscles are so like bizarre the way they're hatched but you know, it, like on the cover, I think it actually looks cool. So I don't know, like well,
1: As Kirby evolves as an artist, though, his musculature in the arms and legs and stuff just gets more and more bizarre over the years too. Though. That's true. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, yeah. All right, I, so. I consider this first page to be why I don't like. I think you know, you're talking about the hatching on his arm. It's so overdone. Just get out a brush, man. Just paint, with <laughs> brush, you don't have to use thousands of little ones which is what he's doing well that he's
2: trying to figure out how to put the cross hatching in there but kirby didn't really pay much attention to the anatomy and yeah a broad brush stroke for that shading would have covered up a lot of the inconsistencies there but if you're going to try to cross hatch it it's like well this is what you end up with the texture is kind of cool i don't mind it it's a little different flavor yeah
0: for a while, we had Cleta inking both Thor and Fantastic Four, and it's like, this is the hell I have to live in. This is my life now. <laughs> <laughs> now that we have Sinnott inking Fantastic Four, Thor has gotten to be even worse for me, because I'm like, oh, Sinat is killing it on Fantastic uh, Four. And it's yeah. so beautiful. And if only he had had Synod, you know, because there was a brief period where Sinat was penciling Thor – when Kirby was off the book, oh, and there was just one issue of Thor that Kirby penciled and Sinat inked, and that was the very first issue, Journey into Mystery number 83. Oh. And during this whole period in the mid-60s, if they just had Sinat ink Thor, I think it would have been right up there with Fantastic Four and Spider-Man as Marvel's three greatest books. But I think with Coletta, it's a distant third.
1: Okay. To jump into this here, we have a relatively lackluster credits this time. When we ended last issue, Thor and Hercules had had an epic knockdown drag out battle throughout New York City. Odin had decided to punish his son for defying him about Jane Foster by cutting his power in half. And this is not the first time we've seen this happen. He is trying to humble his son. Thor gets thoroughly whipped by Hercules in the end after a long and valiant fight. Thor is ashamed Jane wants to come and comfort him, but he basically has too much toxic masculinity. No, I must go prove my worthiness before I can't even look at you. That's where we have left off. So Jane is trying to go after him, but then hears somebody hit in traffic and being a nurse, she feels she has to go and help there. So Thor ends up getting away from her. We then cut to an odd scene in a movie studio in L.A. where an office is being done up to look like something out of Asgard or some kind of outer space something or other. Meanwhile, I forgot to mention that when uh, Hercules left after the fight, it was to go off to Hollywood to be turned into a movie star. So this is presumably the producer who is going to be producing the movies that Hercules is going to be in. So, was Stan meeting with
0: Hollywood yet? Because at some point here, he pairs up with French novelist Alan Renee, starts going out to pitch projects in Hollywood. He he pairs up with Fellini. He's got all these people who want to work with him, and this is certainly a fascinating look at Hollywood starting in this issue. I just I don't know what Stan's relationship to Hollywood was at this point. If he was just prefiguring his own misadventures that of you know obviously, eventually by the end of Stan's life, he would be a cameo guest star in 22 of the biggest movies of all time but he had a lot of heartbreak in hollywood like everybody who goes out to hollywood in the meantime and i don't know if he is just presaging that or if he is actually reflecting that at this point
2: i don't know he obviously already had the spider-man cartoon i think the fantastic four cartoon in production at this point were they i don't think they were I, I think the Spider-Man cartoon hadn't yet started up production, but the other
1: ones with, you know, Captain America throws his mighty shield and, you oh, know, okay. Tony Stark, he makes you feel the something, something. and guess I thought those were all
2: part of the same, like, Marvel Action Hour or something. I, like
1: I, that. Think that, I think those were 66, and then the Spider-Man one was 67 or 68. I think the Spider-Man okay. one was a little longer to come in.
0: But I love here that... Pluto, God of the Underworld, is now in disguise as a Hollywood producer. And the Hollywood producer has the name Pluto, one name. (laughs) Not even Mr. Pluto? Like, oh, you know, what do they suspect that Mr. Pluto is actually Pluto, God of the Underworld? Like, no, just Pluto. I am a one-namer. I am Pluto. No one will suspect that I am actually Pluto, God of the Underworld. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, his face is still that whole weird Kirby sort of mask kind of sort of thing that he's got going on. But it's like, no, no one will recognize me because I'm wearing a white suit and a red cravat. So you know, that's I mean, all we I'm need. Not
2: sure, he's actually trying to disguise himself. I think that, like, all the workers are talking about him, and he calls yeah. himself Pluto. Like, I don't think he's. No, I'm not the Greek god Pluto. <laughs> I think he's like, yeah, it's me. I'm Pluto. What else do you want from me?
0: <laughs> Back to the office. They say, yeah, they even hired a special producer for the picture, some named Pluto. He's not hiding it very much, but he does yeah. wait until since then, once alone in his hauntingly strange, securely locked office, Pluto makes a mystic pass with his hand as the molecules in the air seem suddenly to rearrange themselves into a fantastic flaming image. So he does at least wait until the workers are gone before he creates a mystic image in the air. That's
1: true. <laughs> yeah. Second panel on page four is one of those ones where something In the collaboration between Kirby and Coletta really went sideways. I don't know what the original intention was for what was supposed to be going on in Pluto's face. The union guy in front who's looking back, his eyes, or as Matt likes to say, don't look like they belong in the same head. (laughs) And Thor goes out into the ocean being all emo for a little bit. Meanwhile, Odin is also being all sorts of emo because he was like, oh, I must punish my son. And then he's like, oh, but why did I punish my son? I punished my son for for his love for Jane Foster. But then I just sent Jane Foster after him to comfort him. And then now he's all alone. And oh, I feel bad. And it's like, dude, get it. Get it together, this family. Then his, I, what would he call it? Vizier? Would that be the the term you would use? Named Seedring. He has been given some of the Odin power, and now he suddenly becomes drunk with power and starts using it to try and take over Asgard. Thor is returning to Asgard in his objection, comes to find things are not going well. Everyone has been frozen in various ways by magical powers. There are flames. Yes?
0: Riley, you can talk about this. So, Kirby... One of the greatest comic cars of all time. You would think one of the hardest things to draw, which you can confirm or deny in comics, is someone who is frozen in time. Because in comics, every panel is frozen in time. Yeah. That's, that's, and somehow, I don't know how, but I looked at the top panel at age nine, and I said, those horses are not moving. Those horses are frozen in midair, and only Thor is moving in this panel. How on earth did I get that before I read
2: the dialogue? Um, I. Don't know. I'm not sure it was that apparent to me, but just from an artist point of view, I would say the reason it's working is because the horses and the riders are all kind of like going in one direction and looking in one direction, and they're not interacting with Thor. But Thor, he look he looks more mobile than them. Like he's changing direction and stuff. So, yeah. like they like they're clearly ignoring him. Whatever is happening, and I think that helps to sell that illusion.
0: But I think also Coetta, as much as I hate to admit it, make out a little bit of the credit here, there's a certain solidity to the inking that makes it fairly clear that they aren't moving. You know, there's a heaviness to the shadows
1: that, that that's I would true. think-
2: The shadows are way darker than what he's doing in other pages.
1: Yeah. Yeah. and And there are no action lines of any sort. I mean, I think that's one of the things there that, you know, once again- Credit due to Coletta when he deserves it. Uh, he at the very least did not screw that up, and at best made a conscious choice that I'm going to make sure that this has no indications of movement that I accidentally put in there and, uh, yeah. and confuse this thing.
0: Coletta actually read the script, so let's go ahead and give him <laughs> a little kudos right there. <laughs> he was like, "Hey, what are these? What are these letters on this page? Let me go ahead and read them."
1: Yeah, it's like they're not just covering up backgrounds. I won't need to ink. Thor's trying to figure out what's going on there. Meanwhile, back in Hollywood, a starlet comes in to Pluto, dressed up in some sort of presumably a sword and sandal princess getup and is trying to it seems like she's basically trying to more or less seduce him to be like, I'm going to be in your movie, right? (laughs) He's trying to get her to get Hercules to sign the movie contract because it's actually a contract that will put him in Pluto's service for all of eternity. So that's what's going on there. We don't actually see Hercules in this issue, but that's going on with that little subplot.
2: That that is a great panel. If if anybody ever holds a contract out to you and it looks anything like that, do not sign it. (laughs) Please have your lawyer double-check what it says because it's the most sinister contract I've ever seen. Well, yeah. Also,
0: the person who wants you to sign a contract has a cigarette in a cigarette holder, don't sign the contract. I think
2: it's <laughs> like the weirdest sunglasses I've ever seen.
1: So back in Asgard, Thor makes his way to Seedring, who is power-mad, does this cool thing where he creates this big bubble of water that's floating in the air that then is surrounding Thor and won't leave him. So he's starting to drown until finally he is able to break free just through force of will, basically, and not drowning in there. It looks like Thor is about to go ahead and give a final blow to Seedring, But what Thor is doing is he's going to the Odin Sword in the Tales of Asgard stories. We've been hearing a lot about the Odin Sword. Uh, So this is it in our current timeline. And Thor, he's going to pull the sword out of its scabbard because that will then start Ragnarok. So this is essentially his mutually assured destruction gambit against Seedring. He's able to get Seedring to give up what he's doing. And Thor collapses right as Odin comes back and carries his son and clearly they've had their fight and now they're going to make up yes it's interesting stuff and it's interesting how they've got hercules as this subplot going on and that you know you've got other greek gods or in this case i guess hercules and pluto are the only two who have their roman names everybody else is named with their greek names
2: Uh, yeah i know i know it's mixed up are they the only ones They're the only
1: ones I've noticed. And so I'm assuming they just didn't want a character named Hades because that's become synonymous with biblical hell at this point in our language. Uh, But Hercules, it was, you know, as Matt has pointed out, the uh, Italian sword and sandal Hercules movies starring Steve Reeves were a big thing at the time. So everyone knew the character as Hercules in
2: popular culture. I think that, I mean, Hercules is essentially just the English way of saying it at this point. Like that's just pretty much. Yeah. Yes. It yeah. sounds cooler. It's easier to say than Heracles or whatever. When George Perez was relaunching
0: Wonder Woman in the 80s, he tried to be like, no, these are good gods. We're going to say Heracles. But, you know, of course- It, <laughs> it
2: stick. never sticks. <laughs> but,
0: yeah, so I think this is an excellent issue. Seaturing is a good one-off villain, and then we're developing this other wonderful storyline with Pluto and Hercules. It's interesting that Hercules is not in this issue, that a lot of this issue concerns Hercules, but we don't even get a brief glimpse of him. But I think we have- you know, two excellent stories. We've got Thor versus Cedring. We've got Pluto and this Vavavoom Babe plotting against Hercules. It is an excellent issue. I'm not a fan of the inking, but it is beautifully co-potted by
1: Kirby and Lee, penciled by Kirby. Uh, Meanwhile, we've then got Tales of Asgard at the end here, and this is an interesting one. You know, what they've been doing with Tales of Asgard has been so weird. You know, we've got these very, very slow-moving stories where they then just, you know, have a lot of fun developing some of these characters and just having all this interesting stuff happening, but the actual plot not actually progressing very much so they've just sort of reset the plot here so they were heading out to this epic adventure to try to find out what's going on with the odin sword and why it has a crack in it that might lead to ragnarok but it took them like nine months to basically get out onto sea and then after like one issue at sea Odin is just like, oh, wait, wait, no, the problem's not out there; it's back here. Hey, come, come back, guys. We, we, we just, you know, forget that whole adventure you were going on. Okay, so they're back here, and now, really, what we get here in this story is uh, Vola, the prophetess, essentially just gives everyone this nightmare vision of what. Ragnarok will be like and so you're just getting this whole montage of the forces of evil who will all be gathering with Loki and the battle horn being blown and things falling apart in Asgard and finally everyone coming up to meet the Midgard serpent. Anyway yeah this is a uh, a visual feast for this thing but really it's all just us watching the people of asgard watching a movie of their impending doom
2: (laughs) and i love this as like coming after the previous story in the issue where he has the sword that's going to start ragnarok or whatever and it's like and okay now we're going to show you what ragnarok is like that's that's pretty cool
0: yeah that is really neatly done this is still one of the all-time great potting disasters in Marvel Comics history in terms of having them go on this epic quest that just went nowhere and then they just come home and find out more about Ragnarok but you can't complain this is such a gorgeous five-page story getting to see Ragnarok yeah which will this will give all of Thor's comics for the next 60 years so much more oomph to have Ragnarok hanging over their heads right it's great to see yeah tales to astonish number 78 the prince and the puppet just submariner on the cover no hulk on the cover featuring the somewhat macabre menace of the machiavellian puppet master so another big writing (laughs) fail here writing (laughs) fail on i'm gonna mainly give it to lee with the blame here instead of gene colin aka adam austin we have a whole puppet master versus submariner Uh, story here okay
2: Uh, I just got a button for a second. I didn't really, I was like, who's this Adam Austin guy? I've never heard of him. He's really good. <laughs> it's, okay, that's Gene Colon. That that adds up. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> is Gene Colon inked by Vince Coletta, though? Yeah, no matter what one's defense of Vince <laughs> Coletta is, usually, Vince Coletta cannot ink Gene Colon. It's just yeah, it's
2: It's pretty weird here.
1: N- not a good idea.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, there's a reason you didn't recognize that Adam Austin was Gene <laughs> Colon. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if you got a chance to read the Iron Man issue, but that is also penciled by, quote, Adam Austin, end quote. And that one is yeah. inked by okay. someone who is actually Jack Abel. It looks so much more like Colin than yeah. this does. But so nobody ever acknowledges that the puppet master has controlled Samariner before. He controlled him in Fantastic Four number 14. And uh, they're okay. acting like they are meeting for the first time here so this oh, is that's just,
2: funny well,
1: i i think submariner and this puppet master meeting for the first time i don't know who this guy is speaking
2: of off-model like, characters
1: yes.
2: i guess i gotta look at the fantastic four version to see how much how yeah. different he is.
1: oh and one thing i will say before we get past the cover here is this is one thing that i as an Inker, definitely jumped out at me the way that the Lights in the windows were inked in in these skyscrapers, is the way you're not supposed to do it. You're supposed to group windows together horizontally because, you know, that's how. Yeah, yeah. Not just – exactly. It's not just like random ones here, not there, here, not there. And you don't want to group them kind of vertically, which sort of is kind of happening here in some places. So that definitely jumps out at me as not helping the illusion of uh, seeing what you're supposed to be seeing.
0: Not good, Vince. Another very awkwardly plotted issue, sort of a theme of this month, where we ended last issue with – Summeringer was confronting Hank Pym and Janet Van Tyn about them drilling into his kingdom. That whole storyline goes on for a couple of pages. And then it's just abandoned because then we cut to bizarre off-model puppet master decides, (laughs) I'm now going to yank Summeringer out of this situation and have him come to America and rob banks for me. And it's like, that has nothing to do with the storyline that was going on. This is a complete 180 turn for this story. And, Let's go ahead and take a look at the new puppet master. And my
1: question for you, Stephen Riley, is what the hell is going on on his shirt? It looks like a Punch and Judy puppet or something yeah. like that that has just been dropped on the floor and is kind of in a seating position.
2: Sort of course, just sitting there. Yeah, we never get
0: a good look at it. the The next best look we get it is on page twelve, the final page of the story.
2: It, page eight is the best drawing of it.
0: It is bizarre. Uh, This is an absolutely (laughs) bizarre outfit that the Puppet Master is wearing. He looks totally different than he's ever looked before. He's got these flared red gloves. He's got this red vest with a bizarre yellow picture of a collapsed doll, I guess, or outline of a collapsed doll on it. He is not acting like he's ever acted before. He's not doing anything. He's Well, he is doing something he's done before. He's controlling some error, but nobody mentions that. It's pretty terrible.
2: I'm guessing the artist either didn't know who the puppet master was or he saw the original drawing and it, cause it's so like it, his original look is so stylized in yeah. the way that like I could see another artist looking at them and be like, ah, that doesn't work for my style. How am I going to approach him? So he has a mm-hmm. creepy grin and kind of like weird lips, but he's not, it's just in a different way, but he's also yeah. like a hundred pounds heavier than, than the uh, Jack Kirby <laughs> version. So I don't really know what the hell's going on with him.
0: Yeah. Indeed. Nobody does. So we get a little bit of crossover with the Avengers where we see Jan go ahead and shrink down and head off to the mainland. We know what will happen there because we've already read about it in the Avengers. Yeah, we always talk about how a little bit of Colon's value comes through under Claudia's pen in the Submariner book, but we are getting some Colony goodness on the top of page eight in the creepy old house that Puppet Master is saying. And that looks like a creepy old Gothic mm-hmm. mansion right out of Tomb of Dracula.
1: Yeah, co-signed. And, uh, yeah, th- th- absolutely. I'm I'm with you. We've
0: got this just very mundane story where the Puppet Master is not planning on taking over the world. He just wants to send someone around to rob a bank. We have awkward plotting where he breaks into the bank, escapes with treasury bonds, brings them back to Puppet Master. Puppet Master says, no, I can't spend these. Go back, get me some cash. And then he goes back to the bank and gets confronted by the army. You would think this could have been more simply plotted so that he just gets confronted on the first go round of the trip. But then the issue ends. I think that this is a mess of an issue. We have a perfectly good story that is shut down (laughs) abruptly. And then we've got a tremendously off-model puppet master with a really lame plan. And what is going on on his shirt? I
1: am not a fan of this issue. Riley, we've been talking about how interminable this whole you know, how many how many issues have we had so far of colon being inked by Coletta? It's like is it, is it a full year at this point? It's might it's be been like, it's been like nine months to a year where we've just been seeing colon and the under the alias Adam Austin being inked by Coletta and it is just torture.
2: Yeah, I don't want to <laughs> admit it's <to> me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, colon was notoriously one of the most difficult pencillers to ink. Oh, really? very tough to make those sort of solid decisions because all of this stuff seemed kind of ethereal in some way. And okay. yeah. And so this is just more of the same as far as I'm concerned. I'm just like, please get a different art team on here. Do you keep Colin and get somebody else inking him? Uh, you know, do something, right. but
2: not what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Something's, something's not quite working.
1: Right no. No. Yeah, the first time I read through these, I didn't realize who Adam Austin was either. And in the first issue where they brought him on and he was being inked by Coletta, I was looking at this and I was like, OK, is this guy just terrible or is he being ruined by Coletta? Because <laughs> I've never heard of this Adam Austin guy before.
2: Well, there are parts that are great, like the right. faces all look really cool. Yeah. Um, but then there's definitely some parts where like the anatomy will be wildly inconsistent. Like within the same page, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, and, and Matt and I, uh, our comics history is the uh, the comics that got us into comics in general and Marvel comics in particular were some Avengers issues drawn by Colin. So Colin mm. was our first introduction to Marvel right. comics. So uh, we've got a soft spot in our hearts for Mr. Colin.
0: Yeah. Guess what, guys? I just looked ahead. This is the final issue inked by Coletta. We have just read it. We have made it. And guess who is inking the next issue? None other than the Submariner's co-creator, Bill Everett, who we are about to read about in Ah. our very next issue. We're about to encounter Bill Everett's first visit to Tales to Astonish. And then next week, he will be inking Colin. So uh, we are in luck.
2: Fantastic. Fantastic. I might have to check that one out. Bill Everett's doing it because that sounds good. Yeah. Pretty- that goes ahead
0: and brings us to the second half of the book, The Hulk Must Die. Story by Stan Lee. Layouts by Jack Kirby. Artwork by Bill Everett. Lettering by Sam Rosen. So
1: we have – artwork by Bill Everett, surprisingly. And it's like, yes. <laughs> yes, it is surprising. <laughs> Not in a bad way. <laughs>
0: Coletta is going to be inking Thor for years and years and years, and I am never going to love it. And then then Coletta will finish Kirby's run on Thor, but there will be a six-month period in which Coletta leaves the book, and Kirby is inked by Bill Everett. And those are some of my all-time favorite Marvel comics, the issues of Thor where Everett is inking Kirby. It doesn't look like this. This is just Kirby on layouts and Everett doing most of the art, and weird. it yeah. is – very strange i love it though i am a fan of this issue it gets some weird things the hulk's abdominal muscles i, was gonna say,
2: yeah. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what's going on with the hulk but he had some bad tacos and i can see they so bad i can see it from the outside like.
1: <laughs> yes it's that splash page and then also page two panel one even looking <laughs> at them from behind
2: there's something going on in
0: there, man. It looks uncomfortable. I think mean, the Hulk He's- is trying to smuggle cocaine baggies out of Columbia in his stomach. And, uh-
1: I think the Hulk decided he wanted to challenge his stomach to a fight, so he went to Arby's. And- <laughs> and that's it now working its way through his system. We're waiting for the sponsorship opportunities, Arby's.
0: (laughs) I like this issue. I like the art. It is strange art. It is much more Everett than Kirby. Everett is overwhelming Kirby with doing the finished pencils and the inking in a way he will not when he inks him on Thor later. But it is a strange looking but good book. And I like this story as well. Rick Jones totally screwed over the Hulk last issue. Hulk had been stuck in the future for several issues. Rick Jones was finally convinced, like, look, he's dead. He's never coming back. So go ahead and tell everybody that the Hulk is Bruce Banner. As soon as he did, guess what? The Hulk came back from the future. Bruce Banner has been replaced at Gamma Base by Dr. Zaxxon, who is like, I don't study Gamma Rays, I study organic energy. He's got a whole plan for capturing the Hulk. If the Hulk comes back, I really like the way they capture the Hulk. It's very sort of creepy, weird trap they have for him where they've cut all these squares into the ground and then they've got gas in them and these lines over the top that are keeping him shocked. We cut to – again, you guys are probably reading the recolored Marvel Unlimited version, so I'm looking at the the original issues. Uh, What color is Betty's hair on the bottom of page five? Oh, she's an old lady. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, Yeah. she's gray-haired. Is this supposed to be pale brown or something? But no, she is just a gray-haired old lady. They find (laughs) out that – the Hulk has been captured. Betty is reeling from finding out that the Hulk is Bruce Banner, who she loves. I loved Bruce Banner. I can't bear to think of him as a as a monster. He was so kind, so gentle. So then Rick, at this point, realizes he's completely screwed over the Hulk. And now that everybody knows the Hulk is Bruce Banner, and now the Hulk is back, we get an old-fashioned, something that Kirby used to do back in the day— that he doesn't do much anymore. He has the villain Saxon imagining himself as king of the world. This is something Kirby always loves to do, as the villain imagining himself as king of the world. (laughs) Saxon then puts on a sort of Iron Man Mark I-style armor and goes and fights the Hulk, and that is where the issue ends. This is a fascinating issue. It is a huge step forward for the book in terms of showing how it will work from now on with everybody knowing the Hulk's secret identity. I like Saxon as a villain. I like the way they capture the Hulk. And I really love the artwork. You know, the only real work we've seen Bill Everett do at Marvel so far is Daredevil number one. And I was a big fan of that issue. And I'm a fan of this issue. What did you guys think of it?
2: I mean, I love Bill Everett's artwork. I did not recognize this as him uh, at first when I was reading this. I just don't like the way he draws the Hulk. There's some cool stuff in here. Like I really like the robot guy at the end, but the way he draws the Hulk is just very strange to me. And I, I'm not sorry, I'm not a big fan of it. Um, sure. You know, story wise. Like, I'd never read the story where they first reveal Bruce Banner's secret identity, and that was kind of interesting. Like, is this the first time, I mean, other than the Fantastic Four who never had a secret identity, is this the first time that, like, a major character's identity has been revealed like this at Marvel?
0: Well, we just I had think... Thor reveal his secret identity to Jay, and I think he's sort oh, of Lee yeah. is yeah. experimenting with revealing secret identities at this point. Because I mean, the Hulk was an especially silly case where right. you constantly had like Banner was right here, and now right. here's the Hulk wearing the exact same clothes. Now the Hulk is gone. Here's Banner wearing the exact same clothes, and they just couldn't figure it out.
2: But that one did seem of the more complicated characters because it's like. He's, it's not even like he's in control of himself anymore when he turns into the Hulk. So, yeah. you know, Iron Man could at least, like, make up a story, but, like, the Hulk.
1: <laughs> I like this book. Yes, the art. So when, when we read Daredevil number 1, I was just absolutely effusive over Bill Everett's art. That was my first exposure to Bill Everett's art style ever. And it just really blew me away. And so this is our second introduction to his artwork and yeah uh as as both you have been saying it's a lot weirder like there's a really strange kind of stylized look especially to the hulk's face and yeah his abs you know that's that's true too but uh, the textures that bill everett puts into his art is one of the really, really nice things about this that makes him look quite different yeah. from most of the other Marvel art that we had at the time.
2: And the, the backgrounds are very cool, like all the textures and stuff like that, like you were saying. yeah,
1: some of, the, some of the cartoony faces just sort of look much more golden agey than other stuff, but I'm sorry, I interrupted you.
2: I wonder if working over someone else's layout is something he did much in the past because I could totally see this just being the result of kind of confusion. I was like, okay... Jack Kirby did the layouts. The way he's drawing anatomy, anatomy doesn't really make sense to me. How much of his do I keep? How much do I change? I could totally see that being like, you know, something he's wrestling with here. And the result looks kind of like weird. Like, especially places where I think on page two, there's the army guy with the binoculars. It's like, that doesn't even make sense. I don't know what's happening there. And I could see that being like a layout that he's just kind of like, well, which part do I keep, or which part do I you know, change. They
1: definitely had a lot of exposure to each other's art throughout their careers from the very start. You know, so I don't know how much of that
2: was. Well, but you could know somebody. That doesn't necessarily mean they worked on the exact same drawings before. So this is true. That's just a wild guess for me. Like, I don't really know. I'm not an expert on Bill Everett certainly, and even Kirby, I only know so much about. So,
1: Well, and Kirby's style had obviously been really evolving in the last five or six years here. So yeah, that could also be a thing. He's looking at it like, wow, this is Kirby's stuff. <laughs> like, this isn't what I was expecting. All right. So well, were we doing uh, Uncanny X-Men next? Yes. Okay. Okay. Cool. So Uncanny X-Men, is the Mimic another mutant or something far worse? Of course, the implication that being a mutant was already bad and this is now worse, that's, you know, sort of goes against the grain of a lot of what they're doing here. The Mimic is a cool looking character. Uh, I've always liked the way he looks, but he is, Mm -hmm. it's interesting let's just put it that way uh,
0: well, my big problem with the way the mimic looks is that because he's going to imitate the powers of all five X-Men he's got to you know, sort of wear a visor because he's going to have Scott's powers and the problem is if you're going to have a character wearing Scott's visor then he's got to look enough different from Scott but he's got Scott's same hair so yeah. why would same you have, a hair. have Scott's same hair if he's also going to have Scott's visor? And it's virtually impossible to tell them apart. And when they're introduced to each other in this
2: issue, it's well, like, okay, the the visors are different enough, but the sunglasses when he's not wearing the visor are the same. Right. And there yes. is that one panel where he's first introducing himself, where it totally looks like Cyclops. And you're like, oh, wait, that's the other guy. Okay.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's a real problem visually. So, we start off with the X Men in the danger room. Now, apparently, it is not Professor X trying to murder them in the danger room this time. Scott is just <laughs> going ahead and giving them instructions for what to do. And it definitely looks much less deadly than it usually is when <laughs> Professor X not a is.
2: spikes or fire or electricity.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. There's a little in company ad slash joke that we have on the splash page here that then is continued on in a few pages where Marvel Girl is is practicing her powers by flipping through the pages of a magazine with her telekinetic powers while she is hovering in the air. It's an issue of, what is it, Monsters on the Loose, I believe, which was a really, really silly juvenile magazine that Marvel's parent company produced that Stan Lee wrote, if I'm not mistaken, that was basically just picture stills from like B and C grade horror films uh, with silly captions underneath them. And like, that's yes. the whole thing. So
2: oh, this thing. OK, I was wondering what she was reading. The cover is clearly just a photocopy of something, yeah.
1: something from Martin Goodman's publishing empire that Stan yeah. Lee also did some work on. Professor X comes in and he's like, oh, guess what? I think that you've all done such a good job. You've all gotten back into your best health after being hurt by the uh, Sentinels and Magneto. So you deserve a vacation. And they are all like, we, we get a vacation. And it's like, didn't you people all graduate from mutant school like a year ago? <laughs> it's like, why? They're still
2: supposedly in some kind of schooling. So I- I'm guessing now it's mutant college. You know, <laughs> maybe so.
1: Okay, I'll I'll, yeah. I'll give you that. I'm He's I graduated to that. from
0: mutant high school and immediately began mutant college with all the yeah. same classmates and the same professor.
2: <laughs> yeah. it, would, it would take another twenty years for them to actually rename it to a different thing, but it's still you know Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters, right? But, uh, right.
1: right. What Bobby and Hank end up doing with their free time, instead of going down to the Cafe A or whatever it was, the beatnik bar that they would go hang out in in New York City, instead they go to the New York Public Library. Now, Matt, did your wife Betsy actually work in this main building when she was a uh, librarian there? Yes, it would later be renamed the Schwartzman Branch. At this point, it was just called the main
0: building of the New York Public Library. You can see Patience and Fortitude, the Lions out front. Yes, my wife once worked in the children's collection in the main New York Public Library with the Lions out front. And that
2: is where Firo works. That's a cool place to work. Have that as your office. That's pretty sweet.
1: Yeah, it was pretty yes. cool. Zelda is the waitress that, was it Bobby or Hank was supposedly dating Zelda? Bobby was supposedly dating Zelda, so she has gotten a blind date to fix Hank up with. Well, they go into the library, and he gets into banter That's not particularly friendly or, uh, you know, and somewhat insulting to both of them with this librarian who's there. And it turns out she is his blind date. So Vera and Zelda and Vera is the name of our paternal grandmother (laughs) and always just feels like a very old fashioned name to me. But Yeah. yeah, we often talk about how when they later retconned Bobby as having always been gay. And, you know, obviously that was not something that was thought of. By Stan Lee or the artists at this time, but it's funny to go back and read these with that later retcon in mind. Bobby, at one point, is saying, Zelda's not here yet. Might as well case the other chicks. And it's just like, (laughs) dude, Bobby, you're trying too hard. Anyway, they go and head out for their date, but then they run into this really angry guy who apparently has been stalking Vera. And okay, Matt, in the original colored versions, what color is his face? Just and um, same color as theirs. Oh, really? I, yeah, in this no, version,
2: here- he's definitely redder.
1: Yeah. yeah. He looks kind of like he's been sunburned, but I think it's supposed to be his face is flushed from anger all He's just so –
2: well, because his hands aren't that color. It's just his face. He's just so ticked.
1: He, you know, happens to come by here and then turns out that he ends up developing the powers of both the Beast and the Iceman. And then some guys at a construction site come to rescue these poor – teenagers from this person who is obviously a horrible mutant and so let's go get the mutie
2: Uh, i mean in in the worst date of all time like it got off to a bad start (laughs) nick gets his ass or Hank gets totally beat up by this dude. You, you and, can say gets his ass kicked. We're 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 okay. we're, we're,
1: we're PG. We're, we're, okay. we're not G.
2: <laughs> so like this like this date got off like started off rough and it ends even rougher. So I feel bad for the poor guy.
0: So I grew up reading various Vera comics. Vera will at this point remain a character in the Beast's life. She'll be sort of his main love interest over the years. One of the very first comics I read was. Avengers number 209 where the Beast is trying to save Vera's life. A heartbreaker of a story written by J.M.W.T.S. which introduced me to the Holocaust at age six. Mm -hmm. It had a Beast trying desperately to save Vera's life so Vera is a character I'm like, oh, Vera, please don't die, Vera.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard anybody have strong opinions about Vera at all, ever. (laughs) She had an impact on somebody. (laughs)
1: Matt, i did not remember the De matias vera storyline i'm gonna have to go back and reread that issue
2: because then later on doesn't she eventually become like a drug addict or something like that like oh, in, the x, in the x factor days
1: oh jeez.
2: Yeah. Or, so, or at least like she's not the nerd anymore like she's got like some crazy punk rock hair and you get the feeling that she's been not living a healthy lifestyle <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay I do not remember that well, Zelda was definitely hanging out in beatnik cafes. And, sure. you know, this is a friend of hers. So they obviously have always been part of the nerdier side of counterculture.
2: Especially Beast and like this particular gang of guys. Right. They're definitely on the entry level, the much <laughs> rougher lof- lifestyle for sure. They're still all dressed up with their ties and everything. That, that's freshman year. By senior year, they're going <laughs> to be experimenting with some serious stuff.
1: Yes. So the character who will become the mimic gets away from the construction yard guys who, you know, once again saved these two upstanding young men from this terrible mutant not realizing that they also are mutants uh he and what's his actual name
2: calvin rankin
1: yes so calvin is then playing around with his new powers but then realizes they go away when he's no longer in proximity with these folks
0: more poor potting uh, where he then just completely happens to also run into gene gray you would think (laughs) you would have potted this better you could have said Oh, I just realized when I run to the X Men, I can steal their powers. Let me hunt down another member of the X Men and see if I can steal her powers. Instead, it's just completely random that he runs it is, into
2: it. I would say it is very funny how his telekinesis first appears, where he's like. Uh, the salt's over there man how come it's not already on my table and then it kind of floats over to him which is like <laughs> that, I, <mean.
1: laughs> I wish it was over here hey anyway he realizes that she must be marvel girl and so he decides to tail her home in order to find the x-men so she apparently was not now the, trained. the plotting
2: of the random coincidence of bumping into people like i said in the other issue that didn't bother me in this uh-huh. one either but the one place where the plotting bothers me is the idea that he tailed them all the way back to Westchester and wasn't spotted. <laughs> like, That's a long tail. <laughs> yeah, and, and who knows what her mode
1: of transportation is. That did he they was, take a
2: uh, Rolls Royce into town or were they taking trains or something? Like, how did they get Right,
1: that? yeah. Are they on the Metro North or something like yeah. <laughs> that? Who, who knows? Yeah, but anyway, he tails her home. And yes, I can see what you're saying. On the bottom of page nine, he very much looks like Scott when he first shows up um and then he's like
0: looking at each other on page 10 it's like it literally if they had said this is me scott looking in a mirror then i would have believed it. you just write that (laughs) into the text
1: gene has to shake this guy's hand even though the only two things she knows about him are he bumped into her in a cafeteria and absolutely blew up and lost (laughs) his you know well okay we'll just go ahead and bleep it lost his at her right in the middle of the place, and then that he stalked her all the way home and now knows where she lives, and now she has to go shake his hand like uh being a polite person. Oh, and notice some of this weird stuff in the background in this room. So there are guns like in a shadow box on page 10. There's also what? a little model of a field cannon and what looks like maybe a big shell that's on this panel two. And then panel five, there's a little like late 1700s, early 1800s style field cannon with a pile of cannonballs.
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) I guess it's Xavier's World Trophies or something.
1: Well, oh, so I guess I didn't read the credits for this one. This is uh, drawn by Werner Roth under the pseudonym J. Gavin. This is our first issue without any input of Kirby's. And it's our
0: last issue with Lee. We just have Lee lasting one issue longer than Kirby. So we've got Story, Stanley, Pencils, J. Gavin, Inking, Dick Ares, Lettering, Artie Simack. They don't specifically say, as they did last issue, that this is merely adequate writing, penciling, and inking. But they could have (laughs) because just nobody loves this book. Kirby just left, and now Lee is leaving, and we are going to have Roy Thomas taking over next issue. And,
1: and what, but here's the one thing that gets me the most about this whole situation. How does he know what kind of special sunglasses he needs?
2: Yeah. He knows,
0: <laughs> he knows about the X-Men. He knows all about him. He knows he's going to need some Ruby cord sunglasses.
1: So he just goes down to Sunglass Hut and asks for some ruby quartz sunglasses. <laughs>
2: oh, my, okay, if I can try for the no prize here. The okay. only reason Cyclops actually needs the glasses is because he has a brain injury that prevents him from controlling his powers. Ah, oh.
1: is, is, is that actually canon?
2: Yeah, yeah. It, okay. uh, when his parents got abducted by aliens, he had to jump out of an airplane and he bumped his head on like debris from like the burning plane on the way down or something like that. And okay. that gave him brain damage that was chronically never really repaired. But I assume at this point, like, come on, somebody must have fixed it, right? Like, he's been cloned and died and resurrected it so many times <laughs> at this point. But surely yeah. it works again. You know, in modern comics, I assume the visor can just, like, allow him to aim his beams better. Like, yeah.
0: So, continual issue with this book is how high are the ceilings? We have... A- yeah, No, but I was about to get to that, Matt.
1: That's <laughs> very high, it
2: looks like. who <laughs> oh boy, are they high. This well, sounds... is the danger room in that panel. This is the danger room. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Let's Where see. else would they meet him? Well, there's like weird electronics on the wall.
1: Okay. Yeah, because that was one of my other questions is what's up with the weird electronics on the wall?
2: They've all changed into their costumes and I assume they met up again in the danger room. Okay.
1: Okay. okay. You get the no prize. I will give you that one. Okay. So Mimic had already made himself a costume that would allow him to have his wings and his beast's feet and hands, and Mimic then kidnaps Jean Grey and takes her out to this abandoned mine. So the uh, X-Men still have their horrible tub of a helicopter here. <laughs> uh, it's a, they get the hugest upgrade over the years in terms of their aerial transportation, from okay. their like helicopter bathtub-looking thing to uh, eventually the Blackbird. Mimic decides to just go ahead and uh, tell Jean in this like little apartment that's been made inside the mine, About his origin and his dad was a scientist and ended up spilling some chemicals on him and then he ended up getting the power to absorb other people's powers. His dad was going to go ahead and try to fix his abilities so that he could keep the powers forever, but people figured out where they were and what they were doing and so folks were coming by to hurt them and his dad accidentally blew himself up in trying to save them from the mob. It turns out that his whole plan was if he has the powers of all the X-Men, then he would be able to use the mental power of Professor X to probe where the machinery was under the rubble, and then the power beams to go ahead and blast his way down in there. Anyway, he finds the machinery, and, you know, they have a big fight. He's going to go ahead and put himself in the machinery. He's carrying off Professor X as a hostage, basically. Professor X is like, nope, don't stop him. They're like, "What? wait, Why? nope let him do what he's gonna do uh and then it turns out that his late father was actually trying to find a way to remove his powers rather than to make them permanent so when he was able to get to the machinery and turn it on he supposedly has now lost his powers forever of course he ends up showing back up somewhere else in the future but that is a story for another time overall this is okay matt dislikes werner roth's slash jay gavin's art more than i do i find
2: that it's fine I like his drawings. I mean, it's not as exciting as some people. It's kind of a generic 60s style art, but I I think it's good.
1: So just a couple little things that I uh, noticed that I didn't necessarily mention as I went through. Right. So uh, when they're all leaving to go on their vacation, Hank and Bobby head out together. Bobby's making an ice slide. And, you know, Hank's like, oh, sure, I'll join you. Of course, Hank's the one with bare feet, who's (laughs) always riding on Bobby's ice slides, where uh, top panel of the final page, when they're all getting out of the mine, Psych is saying to Gene, Gene, levitate yourself hurry girl. And she's clearly already levitating herself out of there and moving along quite nicely. Thank you very much. And she says, don't worry, Scotty. I can keep up with all of you easily. But I really like to think of that as like, don't worry, Scotty. I can keep up with all of you easily. Right. Just changing the tone of voice that she uses in these things really improves how I feel about the whole interactions between some of these people.
2: I wouldn't read it that way. (laughs) If she was talking Uh, to Iceman, definitely, but not.
1: I will read it how I I read it. (laughs) Sure. i think scott doesn't then say
0: what beast one time said to her when he was like you're a credit to your gender gene
2: like he asked for a hammer and she hands hands him a wrench I (laughs) yes that's right (laughs) and also totally in character for both of
0: them so let's go ahead and wrap up this episode thanks so much for coming out everybody i think this was pretty good comics none of these are all-time classics but thanks everybody for coming out we will see you next episode for one of
1: the most famous Marvel comics of all time. Indeed. Thank you very much, everybody. And thank you, Riley, for coming. As I've said before, I know that being a guest on our podcast is somewhat of a big ask because there's uh, homework to be done beforehand. But uh, (laughs) thank you very much for being a great sport. And uh, we look forward to talking to you about Fantastic Four shortly. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody out there in podcast land. Stay safe out there. See you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to marvelrereadclub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.